Good morning, and welcome to More Than a Few Words, a marketing podcast. I'm Allison Carter, and together with the Roundtake team, we help small businesses become big businesses. Sharp-eared listeners may have noticed these are not the normal dulcet tones of Lorraine Ball. She is out of the office this week enjoying a fabulous vacation, so I have wrestled away control of the show from her. But we're very excited about our guest today. We are here with Mohammed Yassin, who is the Public Relations and Social Media Director for HCCMIS. Good morning, Mohammed. Good morning. You might recognize Mohammed from several past shows. We also have a new guest with us here today, Ryan Brock, owner of Metonymy Media. Hey, how's it going? And together, they make up the authors of Nothing New, a fantastic new ebook. We're so glad you guys could join us here today to talk about that. Thanks for having us. So you have this book, and it's not your typical social media book, and I think that was something that was important to both of you guys when you set out to write this. Why didn't you want to do the same old thing? What made you go down this new path? Well, I think that uh, new media and social media books in general, there is a glut of them on the market right now. They've been coming out for years. They are very popular, but they tend to all follow the same model. It is, this is what social media is. This is how you do it right. Mm -hmm. Go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Ryan and I, coming from much different backgrounds, wanted to approach it differently, do something a little bit more unique. Yeah, I, I'm not a social media person. I'm a writer who works with social media people. Um, and my background is in literature and classics and things like that. And so when Muhammad said to me, hey, we fit together nicely with what we do and what our experience is, let's write a book together, I said, I'm not going to help you write a self-help book. Like, this is not about telling people the right way to run Twitter. We need to find a way to actually look at the art of storytelling on the web from both of our perspectives and come up with something unique and different. And I think that's kind of how we got started uh, with the concept of the book. Well, and you can tell from the very first pages that this isn't your normal social media book. You mentioned your background in classics. Not too many social media books start with a look at the Aeneid. Yeah, I think um, that's one of those things that I've always carried around as a pretty useless uh, bit of experience in my book. Um, I've taken Latin for several years, and when I was in high school, I actually translated uh, Virgil's Aeneid in its entirety from Latin into English, and uh, I was an officer in my high school Latin club, and, you know, real big geek, but looking forward to college and and the start of my career, um, I think that is a big part of my my, career. understanding of language, you know, knowing Latin and then also knowing the classic storytelling models and having studied literature, I see a lot of trends and a lot of connections to what was done in the past to what's being done today. I have to ask Mohammed, how's your Latin? My Latin is non-existent. <laughs> Absolutely non-existent. And I think that one thing I mentioned about kind of those connections between the, you know, the past and the future, as we started talking through the book that we would write, we knew we wanted it to be different. We didn't know exactly what the topic was going to be, though. We just started having very long meetings, just brainstorming what we were passionate about as individuals, and we kept seeing these connections. He would talk about, um, you know, some ancient Latin text, and I'd say, oh, that's why he did that? That's just like what we do in X social platform. Or I'd talk about Twitter, and he'd say, well, that's the same thing as telegraphy back mm-hmm. in the day. And we kept seeing these connections back, and that's when we kind of clicked for us, and we said, you know what? You know, what we're doing right now with new media really isn't anything new whatsoever. Mm-hmm. We are just trying to tell a really compelling story with the technology of the time, and we decided to go with that topic. And so both of you, uh, you work in, in very, very successful businesses. How do those principles of storytelling right into what you do selling health insurance? Most people wouldn't think of 
selling health insurance is a storytelling-friendly medium. Absolutely not. I, I, and I think that you know, being in insurance in general can be a very challenging um, kind of area to speak about because no one wants to talk about it. However, there is still a kind of a human connection with it because it is the story about the people that are using the insurance. It's the story about the lives that are being impacted by that insurance. It's the story, in our case, as we do travel insurance, of the adventures that people are having while on our insurance and really kind of trying to convey that story to people in a, in a you know, engaging way. I think to kind of jump on that, um, when it comes to marketing any business today, um, content marketing is a term that's thrown around all the time. We're all really excited about it. I know that's a big part of what you do at Roundpeg. You know, that's why Metonymy Media exists. That's why Muhammad's job exists. We're all in the business of using content to create a brand, to get consumers, uh, whoever our audience is, to interact with us and do what we want them to do right. in uh, so few words. And so and I think part of the inspiration we're talking so early on in our book about the Indian is uh, many people don't understand that, you know, classic literature isn't classic literature out of the gate. You know, Virgil didn't write this epic poem with us in mind. He didn't write it so that 2,000 years later, people would talk about it like it's some classical piece of work. No, the Emperor Augustus, who was dealing with decades of civil war and the stress of being the first emperor of the Roman people, said, I need the people on my side. Let's tell a story. So just like Muhammad would tell a story um, about travelers using their insurance products to get people sort of living in that experience and seeing themselves do the same thing, uh, Virgil told the story of the founding of Rome and how Aeneas, this hero, founded Rome, or his progeny would go on to found Rome, and he's got the blood of the gods in his veins, and he's ordained to do this. And so by connecting Augustus to this hero and sort of painting Aeneas and Augustus as the same person, he successfully invited the Roman people into the story of the Aeneid and allowed them to see themselves as followers of Aeneas and, by extension, Augustus. And he won their hearts by doing that. So content marketing has been happening all, all the way since the Roman Empire. Sounds like a 2,000-year-old campaign ad. It is. <laughs> it is, and I, I think you know this is something we kept coming across was that that story that is content marketing. That's mm -hmm. just something that you know is a big buzz that I think has been thrown around recently a lot. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of new media marketers think that we just invented the concept of content <laughs> marketing. This is not the case. You know, it's been around for thousands and thousands of years and used very successfully. We are reusing the same historical concepts of storytelling with new technology and reinventing it a little bit. Well, and the other interesting medium that you mentioned in the book is, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, um, is uh, telegraphy. Is that the right word? With the yes. Slack. Yeah, with the telegraphy. That was your equivalent of Twitter, of writing in this very condensed, short form. What, what kinds of lessons can we learn from the past? Because we tend to think of, of history, you know, they had all the time in the world. They could write these epic poems, and today we're so busy we have to condense it to 140 characters, but that's just not the case. Well, telegraphy, when we're talking about, you know, smoke signals, we're talking about flag signals, we're talking about the way that ships would communicate with each other on the sea during a battle. Um, yes, the ancient world was all about process, and we see them as being very slow. They don't have technology. They don't have right. the things we have. Writing is a process. Printing is a process. These are things that take time. In the course of a battle, with strategies at play, communication has to be quick. So people have always been in the business of finding ways to condense their message down to a very short, short burst. And so Twitter, I think it was obvious to us from the start that this is the equivalent today, that Twitter is telegraphy. And it, it really truly is. Telegraphy being 
communication not using the physical object. So there's a lot of code and a lot of pretty things happening in the background that make Twitter work, but it's essentially our way of delivering short bursts of information. Um, and so I think when you look at stories of people like Admiral Lord Nelson back in the Napoleonic Wars, who used telegraphy not only to tell his fleet, you know, what to do in the course of the battle, but also said inspiring things like, England expects that every man will do his duty. He was able to really sway the tide of battle. He was able to move his men, take responsibility, and actually win, win the battle. And so I think uh, that's a good lesson for anyone who's trying to wrestle with something like Twitter and say, I have no words in which to tell a story, very few words, uh, but I have to do it. And we've seen in history that people are capable of using even short, short sentences and you know, forms of communication to tell a much bigger story than you might think. So I think that one of one of the constant themes in, in the book is medium versus message, is what's the right channel for delivering this information. Talk about how, how that impacts what you guys do with, with your businesses every day. Well, I think that, you know, to, to Ryan's point, he talks about, we talk a lot in the book about how people had to change the message that they were writing because of the medium that they were distributing it in. So with telegraphy, they're trying to, you know, communicate a long message via flags, they had to use short, mm -hmm. shortening kind of codes and mm -hmm. commonly known things like on Twitter. Lots of abbreviations, lots of hashtags that we use to condense a lot of information in the smaller pieces of information. We do the same thing today. I think the difference is that we may have multiple channels that we can distribute through. So maybe we have one story to tell, but we have to tell it one way on Twitter. We have to reinvent it and tell it a different way you know, via a web video like YouTube. We have to then reinvent it and tell it maybe in a longer form um, in a blog post or in an article, or you know, on Facebook. It's all these different mediums where it's the same compelling story that you have to plan out in advance, but you have to find different ways to deliver it that are going to fit the medium in which you're, you're communicating. So if I could take this time to make an impassioned plea, I'm going to ask everyone, if you're one of those people who's still pushing your Facebook messages to Twitter and your Twitter messages to Facebook. Stop now. <laughs> for the love of everything, please knock it off. So you talked extensively about these, these historical events. You, you mentioned when we talk about the Aeneid, you talk about Admiral Lord Nelson and the Battle of Trafalgar, you talked about Ben Franklin. What was one of the stories that you guys thought about considering but didn't quite make the cut to the book? <laughs> oh, I, 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 there was one chapter. Uh, the reason we, we, when we kind of outlined the book, I think we had maybe five or six different um, kind of mediums that we wanted to cover. One of the ones that I was very passionate about up front was about video, because it was one of those where there's not a long history of video, but we do have, you know, things we can refer to back in the 50s. We can talk about, you know, back when people were going to films to offer to their news at the same time and how that translated to now, when anyone can shoot a video on their iPhone and upload it and it's there in 30 seconds and everyone can see it you know, all around the world. Um, but, you know, when it came down to it, we were up against one deadline. So we had set some very aggressive deadlines for ourselves, and we had said we are going to meet these deadlines. And that was one that kind of had to fall by the wayside that, you know, it would have been a really interesting look. And, and I think with the video chapter, we had a few different ideas. And in the book right now, in the in the epilogue, there's even, if, uh, I think we even wrote about the fact that we could have talked about video, even though that seems a little bit weird uh, looking back in time. But one story that stands out in my mind that I think is very relevant to what we've written about is the story of the Hindenburg crash. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you hear to this day people saying, oh, the humanity, oh, the humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think even when I hear it to this day, I don't really fully understand what that means. But that's what makes it so powerful that, you know, for the first time in history, um, when big things are happening, like a giant dirigible coming in uh, and then landing or taking off, whatever it was, I'm mean, not solid on that, but 
um, you can send out cameras to film it and then you know put those those films in theaters where people are going to see movies and stuff like that. Uh, but alongside that, radio is also very popular. So now when we think of a, a television recorder, you know, we know that we've got the audio with the video and it's all sort of packaged together. But back in the days of the Hindenburg, you would have had people there representing radio stations, which were the big medium of the time, right. um, alongside the cameras. And so now when we see videos of the Hindenburg crash, we have that famous audio overlay of this person who is witnessing what's happening in front of him telling us, uh, you know, look, this is horrible. Oh, there's fire, there's flames, it's crashing. Uh, people are running and screaming, oh, the humanity. And that was the first time that had ever happened. You know, right. we're used to hearing commentary on what we see, whether we're watching a sports game, mm -hmm. a news story. This was the first time in history that we were able to take some audio of a man witnessing this event, sync it up with some video, and get a story that was way more than just a photo, way more than a painting, way more than a newspaper report. You got to see the raw emotions of what it was like to be there. And I think that kind of set a precedent for how video would go to now, to today. You know, people who talk about modern digital video always talk about being real, being conversational, showing who you really are. And I think that's the power that video has that maybe writing might not ever have. It's interesting that you, uh, I think that between the Hindenburg, we can almost draw a parallel to the plane crash on the Hudson River. Absolutely. Which was really the first time that Twitter broke on the scene in a big way, again, just as video didn't immediately supplant radio, and it's never entirely supplanted radio, uh, we at that time saw Twitter to be a great second screen supplement to the news coverage that we were seeing on our screens, in fact, breaking the news faster than what we were seeing on. No, absolutely. I think one of the things we're seeing is since we have so many forms of communication that are prevalent right now, we're seeing kind of a mix of those things, and all of them are lifting each other up. Um, you talk about traditional journalism. Um, you know, one thing we, we found in the research was that 55% of journalists has re had reported that they use Twitter as one of their sources for yeah. information. You know, this is something where they can get quick information in real time, get it out to people in these traditional types of, you know, media. Um, and from a, you know, from the perspective of the consumer, they're used to having this back and forth interaction and almost, you know, interacting with the news that's being conveyed almost as if they were there, providing information and receiving information in real time you know, that we were not able to do historically. And this is where I get really passionate because you'll hear people sharing a story of 55% of reporters using Twitter in their articles or on, on their news stories, whatever they're using it for. And people will say, well, that's dumb. You know, that's why would you trust the Twitter masses to do that? And, you know, you hear talk of people who are going to ruin the report with false information mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but the question I would ask is, since when do we trust that journalists are always giving us the right information? You know, again, this is nothing new. The sources that someone would have had to drive out to meet or call or do whatever with, you know, 50 years ago, they can now talk to on Twitter. And yes, and yeah, there's room for error, but there always has been. Well, a great example of this is um, for NPR fans, you might be familiar with Andy Carvin, who is their director of digital um, reporting. And from his home in Washington, D.C., he actually reported on, corroborated online reports, uh, verified video, translated items, and covered entirely from his home in the D.C. area the Arab Spring Uprising. And did an excellent job at it. It's fantastic. A. Carvin on Twitter, um, he is a great source for international news of all kinds, and he's really breaking new ground in because almost all of his his journalism work is done in the digital space. Absolutely, I mean, and it's real time. Yeah. He doesn't have to worry about 
kind of packaging that into a larger story that he's going to put into a you know 60 second piece on NPR. You're getting you know news from him all day yeah. long from great stories that are on the gr- or great sources that are on the ground. It's amazing. It, it really is. And we talked a little bit about the Arab Spring in the book. I think in our original discussions and what we wanted to cover, that was obviously a, a more central part. Mm-hmm. By the time we wrote it, it, it ended up getting buried under some other stuff, but. We were interested in the fact that telegraphy is traditionally something that comes from conflict, that mm-hmm. telegraphy is what is used in the midst of conflict because it's quick and, and easy and necessary. And you see how successful Twitter was during the Arab Spring uprisings. It really makes you think about the fact that you know, MySpace was around five years ago. Why wasn't MySpace central to any resolutions? Why haven't blogs been central? I mean, it, these are things that have been around for a while. Communication on the Internet has not uh, come up in the last you know year or two. No. But when you consider the fact that in such an instance, the urgency that Twitter forces on you is convenient, it's necessary, you need to be able to communicate quickly, it suddenly starts to make sense um, why Twitter is even the powerhouse that it is today. Because you'll hear a lot of people who aren't on Twitter, I think decreasingly with time, say, why, why would I want to get on there? Why the hell would I want to use something that I can only say 140 characters and it's done? And you'll hear people saying, I got out of the shower. I am eating food. And that's their, that's their take on what Twitter is. Yeah. And so you have to ask yourself, with all of the technological uh, capabilities we have with the Internet, why do we use Twitter? Why do we put arbitrary limitations on what we have to say? And I think it's because we value that. We value the instancy. Our lives are quick. Our lives are increasingly chaotic. Um, and, you know, it's becoming a standard that we're okay with saying very little and, and making our stories big because we're saying very little. But I think that those constant updates, you know, while they may seem trivial in the short term, they can really enhance communication when you do have time for that longer form. For instance, I hadn't seen either of you guys in about a month or so, yet when we saw each other, we were able to say, oh, Muhammad, how's your dog? How's your wife's fight against FedEx going? Um, You know, Ryan, I know you've been watching Doctor Who. Let's catch up about that. So really, having that constant background information really enhances the long-form communication when you have the chance for it. Certainly, it makes us off closer as a, you know, kind of a global community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were. Like, when you talk about breaking news on Twitter, for me personally, my first experience with that was when um, Osama bin Laden was killed. I found out about that on Twitter. I did not find out about that on TV. I read Twitter, and about five minutes later, that's when the yep. television kicked in and said breaking news. And I think part of me was definitely waiting for that breaking news. I'm not yet at the point where I'm willing to totally rely on Twitter for that. I want the details. I want that rich, full story. Uh, but, you know, I think that's just evocative of what you were saying. That's another example of really also how, you know, the medium and the technology along with and the adoption of smartphones, you know, mm-hmm. spread of those has impacted, the, you know, the, the news. That's a situation where, you know, a very kind of, top secret thing is going on, but at the same time you have someone in the neighborhood on Twitter. Yeah. That is hearing this, reporting it in real time. And that hey guys, I see that there's a helicopter exactly. in here. What is yeah. it? And boom! All of a sudden, everyone knows what's going on. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, the event that you're referring to. This guy in Pakistan was like, "Gee, there's a lot of Blackhawks." Right. Like, no, no one even realized the significance of what he was seeing until days later, and then all of a sudden he's like, "I went nuts overnight." But now we have a record of it, and I think that's what's really intriguing to me because when we talk about Virgil. We can say with great certainty that Virgil did not care about you or me or anyone in school when he wrote the Aeneid. Now, there's sort of an onus on us to think when we're tweeting, when we're writing things, you know, we like to think that what we publish online is our own privacy, but we want to talk about the Benjamin Franklin aspect of, of the book. We talked a lot about how 
if you have the capability of publishing yourself, whatever you intend for your words is, is no longer relevant. When you publish something, and Facebook you know, might make it really easy to write whatever we want and publish it, whether you think you have privacy, whether you have the illusion that that belongs to you, once you publish it, it's out there. So now, all of us, not just people in marketing, not just people uh, who are dealing with social media, have to be aware of the second life that our content takes. That when we publish a blog post or a Facebook status, that you know the act of publishing and the few comments that might come after aren't everything. You know that, that 50 years from now, our grandchildren mm-hmm. will be seeing what we did with our Friday night last week if they yeah. want to. And I think that's really cool. I don't think that's something to be afraid of. I think it's awesome that I can only see the life of my grandparents through films that aren't even about them or pictures that they're in. Um, my kids, assumably someday, are going to be able to see everything about my life because it's been so documented. And I think that a thousand years from now, that's going to be very big. That like our our time that we're living in now, just like you know maybe uh, Shakespeare's time, maybe Virgil's time, uh, people are going to look at this as a, a big change in the way communication. Is. Well, that's a great point because all tweets are archived by the Library of Congress. Yep. So not going anywhere. (laughs) Everything that you write on Twitter, you're building history in a very real way, and not just the big stuff. But for instance, we don't write letters anymore. No one writes letters on paper. But for so many of the great people of history, we know them through their private letters. That doesn't exist anymore. In the future, people will know us through our tweets. So take that as a comforting thought or a terrifying one, depending on what you tweet. I think it it both it both shows you that, you know, you are, when you choose to publish yourself, a, a commodity to be consumed. But also, I think it reminds me that I think in the future, the concept of, of you know, one of us being the authority on a certain time, you know, like we look back at, at uh, Thomas Jefferson's letters to, to know what life was like back then. I think we won't need that in the future. We'll have so many, we all together, collectively as a society, are now documenting everything. There's not going to be a question of what life was like in our day and age. There just isn't. We're all storytellers. And everything we're writing is important. I think that's, you know, even the little stuff, like you said, everything we're writing is part of the greater story that when time goes on and we see that story come to fruition or continue, it's going to be compelling. And I think it's really interesting to keep in mind that when we when we do push publish or we push tweet this or whatever, we have significant power there. It's something that people, you know, did not have before, but we have it now. It's interesting to see what's happening because of that. Talking about all this at a very high level, very political level, very historical level, what does it mean for your average business owner or your average person working in a company? I know that you didn't want this to be your average social media book, but ultimately most of us read those kinds of books to take away lessons that we can apply in our businesses. What do people take away from your book? Well, I think the big thing to take away from it as a business owner, as a marketer, which I think every small business owner especially is, is to realize that the of communication channels of your consumers have changed. They're used to being able to interact with you as a company, as a brand, and as an individual um, in a way that you you may have been able to maintain some distance in the past. You have to be there and available for them, and you have to win them over with your story as a brand and your story as you know a, as a company and what your you know kind of what your what your culture is. People are looking for that, and they're making decisions with that just as much as they're making decisions about how great your widget is that you're selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that you have to be someone that's very conscious of what your brand is, very conscious of how you're going to communicate that brand, and you have to keep it up in real time. You know, it, it, it's just important to have that you know, LinkedIn group or that Twitter account or you know, that, that YouTube channel now um, for finding new customers as it is to still sit down with folks and chat with them face-to-face when you need to. Oh, you're right. When do you want people to walk away knowing from your book? 
more than anything, I think there's there's a line in the book, and I'm probably going to misquote it, so I'm not going to take the time to scroll over there. But um, you know, like I said before, whether you're in marketing or you're just a small business owner, you're someone that works for a company, and you're in the business of telling a story. Um, that, that's what you're in. You're in the business of telling a story. We're all storytellers now, um, and so I think one of the big takeaways from this book that we kind of pulled out and put it the front of chapter one was that you should be doing what you do. You should be tweeting, you should be Facebooking, you should be getting content out there, not because it's your job to earn ROI or impressions or anything like that, but because you have a compelling story to tell. Um, and I think that when we look at the great stories of people like Admiral Lord Nelson, like Virgil, um, those were consequential. Those were just day-to-day -day stories that became bigger because someone chose to tell them. Um, and so, you know, I always tell people, your story isn't something you create, it's something you share. And so we have the tools to share those stories, and we need to let the tools that we use influence that. We need to let Twitter inform us on how to tell our story. We need to let Facebook, and let the blog, let websites influence that, but that doesn't change the fact that we do have a story to tell, and it's not something that we have to create, it's not something that we have to ideate, we have to make, we just have to share it, and, and people are ready to hear it, and I think that that's really cool. Absolutely. I'd like to shift gears a little bit, actually, away from the message and to the medium, because you guys made an interesting choice of how you chose to, to market and even sell this book. It's only available in ebook form, right? Correct. It's only available online. And you chose to do some interesting things with whether or not the book was free or whether or not the book was paid. You gave away a lot of copies of this book. Absolutely. I'd say that probably 95% of the copies were flat out given away. I'd say 99%. Um, yeah, <laughs> easily, easily. I mean, we gave away a lot of copies of the book, both in advance of the release and then also once we published um, on Amazon as well. Once again, the book is about technology and how we're using storytelling in the technology world. It makes sense, makes sense for us, um, both from a cost perspective, mm -hmm. you know, as well as just getting it out to as many people as possible to release it in a digital format somewhere where lots of people are looking for books. Amazon, you know, one of the one of the it is basically the biggest bookstore you could find, um, but also the easiest one to get your, you know, your message into. And then from a promotion perspective, you know, I know digital media. You know, I don't know the traditional publishing and promotion formats. I know digital media. We know send a tweet. We know, we know create a Facebook page in advance, you know, build critical mass on that, promote via that Facebook page. We spend a lot of time in advance of the book building the Facebook community, building the Twitter community, and then we shared, you know, basically live tweeted the, you know, the, the writing of the book, mm -hmm. you know, pictures from the, you know, from our brainstorming sessions, mm -hmm. um, you know, hand-drawn layouts of what the book was going to look like, even illustrations that were going to be in the book that we had, you know, whiteboarded, um, things like that we shared in real time with our community so they could share, they could follow the story mm -hmm. as we were writing the book, build, you know, excitement about that, and then once we published, Get it out to those communities, and you know, really target, um, especially locally, large events where we knew new media marketers would be, and making sure that it was available to them during the times of those events, mm -hmm. and promoted heavily at those times. And that's you know what really got it out there very quickly. You know, within the first week, we had hit the top five for um, Amazon ebook. Actually, we were number two at one point. It was amazing. That's selling off you know? right here. That's selling exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But really, it's amazing. It's amazing that, you know, you can do that now in, you know, in, a, in a world where 20 years ago that would have been impossible mm -hmm. for us to do that. And I think, I think we could even, you know, should we dive more into this later, do a second book, do a follow-up, expand the one we currently have. Mm -hmm. We could do a whole chapter on Amazon and connect it to the birth of the traditional short story as we know it and how 
during the Industrial Revolution, when you start industrializing the print, printing press, you give authors a new way to get their books and their stories out there to the masses. So they start thinking, we got to get these things out. Let's start writing shorter stories. Let's start write in a way that's different. And, and they adapted and changed. And the short story as we know it, which is really a, a truly American art form, um, is the result of that. And I think so, like, we're, we're going through that again. There's a lot of parallels, you know, there. So at any point, when we're using this technology, I think it's pretty easy to look back and see that this is nothing new. People have been doing this for centuries. Absolutely. And the book is Nothing New, an irreverent history of social media. Where can people find it? They can find it via our website. It's nothingnewbook.com. Um, right there on the front page, there's a nice link over there to Amazon. Just click on that and grab it. It's a uh, very cheap, four ninety nine download. There will be free download days. So just follow us and we are on the account there on the website, Twitter, Nothing New Book, um, and we will be announcing those days as they come out. And if people would like to find more information on both of you, where should they go, Muhammad? For myself, you can find me on Twitter at Muhammad Inc. That's M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D-I-N-C. Sorry for the last name. That's where I'm on Twitter. Ryan? Uh, they can find me at Twitter, Ryan Brock. Um, they can also learn more about my company, Metonymy Media, at Metonymy Media on Twitter, on Metonymy.com. Um, and you're going to be speaking at the next social media lunch, is that right? Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so. Um, we're not sure yet on a date on that or anything, but I'm going to be talking about this same sort of stuff, um, how you know Shakespeare or someone else might teach us how to tell our story on the web and looking for good cues for storytelling from the past. So look out for more info on that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and thank all of you, thank all of you out there. This has been another episode of More Than a Few Words. To find more information on marketing and small business, find us at Roundpeg on Twitter or at roundpeg.biz. This has been More Than a Few Words. Thanks for listening. <laughs>